All right, so I want you guys to bear with me today because I want to talk about something fairly serious. Um, and uh, we're going to get to a place of joy, and that's, that's definitely going to happen. Do you need something? Do you, do I, you didn't turn it on? I, I feel like it's on. Um, it's Jeff's fault. Okay. All right. Uh, we are going to go to a place uh, uh, of joy and comfort. But before we get there, we, we kind of have to go through some things. So um, bear with me here. Stay with me. How is it possible to live in the most advanced, prosperous, and free nation in history and at the same time have a sense that our lives are at some fundamental level not right? How is it possible to carry around historically unimaginable tools of communication in our pockets? To live on a planet with 7.6 billion people in it and yet suffer from a crisis of loneliness? How is it possible to know more about the human mind, I mean neurologically and psychologically, than at any other point in human history? A body of knowledge developed over centuries through hundreds of thousands of intricate peer-reviewed scientific studies, and yet we have a growing mental health crisis, a growing one. How is it that we can have perpetually high-quality, affordable access to virtually limitless entertainment of every genre and style and medium imaginable, and yet most of us still feel terribly bored? How is it possible that with each year we gain new systems, technologies, and services that allow us to be more efficient than ever before, and yet our work seems to invade more and more parts of our lives? Now, you might want to stop me and say, well, wait a minute, Alan, I, I think uh, maybe that's just you. <laughs> you just, you're just telling on yourself. Actually, I know quite a few people who live happily, uh, have happy lives, they're content and interesting lives. And the society you describe doesn't sound like anything I've experienced. Um, and yet I wonder, if we take away their phones, computers, and televisions, their podcasts, exercise classes, 80-hour work weeks, their shopping sprees and planners, would they not start to feel the weight of their own existence closing in on them? Would they not begin to worry, to feel a kind of constricting anxiety, a fear of missing out, of falling behind, of wasting away? Would not their conscience begin calling up memories of failures, of doubts and insecurities? Now, thankfully, thankfully, society's taking care of us. Uh, the modern world is perfectly designed for people that are afraid of being by themselves. Uh, it's remarkable to think that uh, during the last 18 months, I'm going to try not to use that, that word to describe the thing that we've gone through for the last 18 months because we're all sick of it. During the last 18 months, there was an opportunity in some sort of alternate universe uh, for us to reckon with the way our culture and society works, to reckon with the way that we have or actually don't have real communities, to be faced with these things because so much of it has been taken away, but that didn't end up happening for the vast majority of people. And one of the reasons I think that is, is because we have technology that has enabled us to escape even when we're trapped in our homes. Smartphones were not designed uh, 
to be addictive against our wills. Smartphones are designed to be addictive, but my claim is it's not against our wills. We've asked for it. We want to be addicted to our screens because a screen into another world is much, much safer than a mirror that reflects our own heart. A screen can divert our attention from the disorder right in front of us, in our own hearts, even if it means diverting us with news reports of greater disorder across the globe, which is very fascinating. There's something more relieving, uh, more, uh, less stressful about reading about horrors uh, uh, you know, across the sea than thinking about our own problems. So, again, how many of those people who, who seem to be living interesting, content, happy lives are only able to get out of bed in the morning because of the, what I would call the momentum of life? Uh, in other words, they have a job or they have a school or some other obligation, and they're able to keep going just because they've always kept going. How many of those who seem to live fulfilling lives are mil- merely filling their lives? Now, I, I don't doubt for a minute that many people in our country live, ha, are, have stimulating, pleasurable, and even comfortable lives. But then, so do lots of cats and dogs. And if humans are distinct from animals, and they are, then stimulation and pleasure and physical comfort are wholly inadequate measures of the good life. They're fine things, but they're not enough. Now, don't, understand, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everyone is absolutely miserable beneath the surface, but I do think that a lot of us are anxious A lot of us are lonely and tired and bored and overwhelmed and tired again. The motto I hear many people repeating to themselves is, I just need to get through today. I just got to get through today. I just got to get through this. (laughs) Sometimes we'll uh, spiritualize it. Well, this is just a season. I just got to get through this season. Uh, What I've discovered is the season never ends. (laughs) A new season comes, and you'll always be waiting for the better season. Now, on the whole, and the, the, the difficulties that I'm describing here, I notice that I'm not dis- making a distinction between sort of the secular world and the Christian world, because I think as a part of American society, most of our churches are afflicted with these same problems. And we need to tease out why that is, and that's part of what we're going to do today. So how do we cope? On the whole, not all of us, but most of us, how do we cope with this? How do we survive? How do we keep going? Um, I think most of us self-medicate. Now, uh, some self-medicate, some drink, some take prescription antidepressants or stimulants or anti-anxiety meds. Some eat, some binge-watch friends. I I teach college, and uh, this is a a very common thing. A student will come to me um, overwhelmed with anxiety because they missed an assignment. I'll ask them, well, what did you do over the weekend? And they'll say, "I, I... I was depressed, so I just watched Friends for like 18 hours. Uh, And yeah, I I always want to laugh too, like, but why? At least watch Seinfeld or something. Friends is not that good. Chose the wrong one. Um, But uh, what's interesting, you know, sometimes, actually quite often, we'll look at, you know, younger people who do these sorts of things. We'll be like, you're just lazy, like, y- y'all need to get your act together and start working. But when that student comes to my office and tells me that, she's depressed. 
It's not laziness that's bothering her. It's not that she doesn't take life seriously. It's that she takes life so seriously that she has frozen and is incapable of acting in the world. What we'll see is that that's actually a pretty common response to the kind of world that we live in. A response that takes two forms. One, an overwhelming sense of inadequacy, I'm not good enough, and inaction, I can't act in the world. All right, back to my list. Where was I? Friends, that's right, yeah. Uh, Some work more. Actually, a lot of us just work more. Some work out more. Some cut themselves. Some immerse themselves in the news. Some immerse themselves in... Uh, pornography, some play video games, some shop, some sleep, some um, become uh, fans of music, some scroll endlessly through Instagram, some post endlessly on Twitter, some obsess about their health, some obsess about the environment, some protest online, some protest to become famous online, some travel, some attempt suicide, some attempt self-improvement, some abuse people, some join extremist movements, there's lots of them in our world today, Some join multi-level marketing programs, so kind of similar. Also a lot of those in the world today. Some take up yoga. Some take up gambling. I'm in Oklahoma. There's a lot of that um, destroying lives. Some participate in extreme sports. Some participate in illicit romances. Some daydream about being diagnosed with a disease that will justify their mediocrity. Some invest in self-care. Some invest in bitcoins. Some discover a new identity, some modify their bodies, some modify their diets, some embrace victimhood, and some embrace mocking victimhood. But the point is, we all seem to medicate, because if we don't, we're not sure that we can get through the day. Now, if that sounds pessimistic about modern life, uh, I I want to talk about a couple of of examples. Uh, One of them is... Uh, the growing mental health crisis, which I mentioned earlier. Among young Americans, there, is, there has been a dramatic increase in mental health diagnoses. College campuses are ground zero for this. Um, I've, I've been at a number of colleges, and um, all of them have the same problem. They, they can't afford enough counselors to deal with the students who need help. Most, most schools have failed to keep up. It's not just colleges, though. It's, it's really all schools. In my own experience as a professor, <clears throat> students uh, suffering from mental illness are not, you know, what it, they're commonly called snowflakes. On the contrary, many times I've had to urge students to take advantage of our school's mental health services because they'd prefer to keep their problems to themselves and to muscle through, to tough it out, even as their lives are falling apart. Uh, as I've witnessed, young people are torn up over very serious things. Broken families, childhood abuse, anxiety, depression, loneliness, dread that they'll never amount to anything. Imposter syndrome is very common. Choice paralysis, uh, addictions of various kinds. We're talking about profound and extensive brokenness. Think about this. One survey found that Nearly 43% of undergraduates felt so depressed that it was difficult to function in the past year. So there's that inaction again, driven by a sense of inadequacy. 43, that's a lot of percent. 46 said they felt overwhelming anxiety. Now, between the scholarly research I've done on this and my own experiences in the classroom and my office hours, Um, I've gotten to the point where where I assume in any given class 
There are going to be survivors of sexual abuse. There are going to be people struggling with clinical depression, anxiety, aimlessness, and a class of 20 students. That's the basic assumption I have to have now. So something has changed. This is not good. Our kids are not all right. And frankly, adults are not doing a whole lot better. According to the CDC, boy, we're, boy, we're sick of them. Um, this was, <laughs> I wrote this before we heard them every day, so sorry if that's triggering. It is to me, it's the CDC. Um, from 2011 to 2014, almost 13% of people aged 12 and over took antidepressant medications over the past month. Now, I'm not criticizing antidepressants whatsoever, but I am saying that there is a marked increase, and that should make us ask the question, why? Okay? Um, so, uh, in fact, this increased uh, use of antidepressants caused one historian of psychiatry to say, we've come to a place, at least in the West, where it seems that every other person is depressed on medication. And then he said, you do have to wonder what it says about our culture. Well, that's terrifying. Yeah, it does seem like a good question. What does that tell us? Um, even more alarming is the declining life expectancy in America. In 2018, the director of that organization with three letters released a statement that said, tragically, this uh, troubling trend is largely driven by deaths from drug overdoses and suicides. Um, the life expectancy of Americans declined, I think it was in 2016 or 2017, for the first time since the last pandemic, the Spanish flu. Um, now they will, you know, I'm sure it's only declined even more um, given the last 18 months. But it was declining before that. Two, uh, two great economists, Ann Case and Angus Denton, um, did some research on what they called deaths of despair. And so they tried to figure this out. Why is it that, that because in the industrialized world, life expectancy goes one direction. It always goes up. People live longer on average. That's just the, the history of life expectancy. What happened in America that all of a sudden it's being reversed? That's remarkable. So they study the numbers, and here's what they discover. They discover that there's, there's really three main causes. Uh, one is uh, drug overdoses, one is suicides, and one is alcohol-related deaths. And they, they say that really all three of them come from the same source, and that is a sense of despair. There's a sense of despair. Um, they repeatedly point, and this was super fascinating, because this is not a, a Christian text at all. I mean, they might believe something, but it certainly was not clear in their academic book. But they repeatedly point to the loss of meaning. Isn't that interesting? The loss of meaning experienced by less educated Americans who, who have experienced a loss of fulfilling work, marriages, churches, and communities. Something's happened in our nation where particularly those who don't have college education are working what some call meaningless jobs and find work, marriage, churches, and communities less fulfilling. And they're also detached from all those things. Now, um, I want to give two more, two more examples of, of the kind of disordered way our society works that, that just came up as, um, after I wrote this book and um, struck me as interesting. Um, I, I saw a recent um, study. This was part uh, the study was not published, but the article about the study was published in the Harvard Business Review, uh, and it was asking the question to workers, what one uh, perk would you like in your job? 
And guess what people said? Sunlight. And um, on the surface, like that's, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Everyone wants a window. But then as I thought about that, I thought, that's pretty depressing. Like the sun is pretty essential to being a human being, experiencing sunlight, the way God designed the world. It's remarkable that we live in a society where most workers would say, could I please see the sun? Could I please have some natural lighting? Here's another, another sign of, of, of despair. From 1990 to 2021, the percentages of men who have no close friends went from 3 to 15. 15% of adult men have no close friends. Uh, friendship is very, very important. If we have created a society where friendship is difficult to have, for example, let's say we encourage people to move a lot. It's hard to keep relationships. It's hard to have close friendships when people are leaving. Uh, my best friend moved over the summer. I, have, I, I guess I'm, I'm part of the 15% now. Um, and as I, I tell my students, they always seem shocked when I tell them this, but as an adult, you have to be incredibly intentional about finding friends because uh, the, our work lives, our social lives, our expectations that society puts on us means that there's not a whole lot of time for friendships if you don't work hard for it. Okay, so what's contributing to these things? Well, one of the things I want to point to is that... Um, we live in a society governed by something called technique, technique. And this technique conditions us to believe that life is getting easier than it's ever been. Technique it's, it is, a, is a concept by this uh, French uh, reformed um, historian, sociologist named Jacques Ellul, and he says it's the use of rational methods to maximize efficiency. So I would just say focus on that part about a method to maximize efficiency. And we see this everywhere. We see this everywhere. Think about time-saving technologies or apps that maximize our workout. Um, medicines that drown out irrational thoughts, ubiquitous entertainment in our pockets, scientifically proven methods for parenting, uh, working or eating or shopping. or but I feel like there's a, there's a, a hack for everything. For, for example, a couple of years ago, um, uh, I was having problems. I'm still having problems in the back. Who, who doesn't? But uh, I thought maybe it's, maybe it's because I'm sleeping wrong. And so I, saw, so I, I Googled, you know, uh, uh, side sleeping, and I find this article on the proper technique for sleeping on your side. And I was shocked at first because I thought, what a, who wrote this? Why? But then I remembered, actually, that's for everything. You take anything that you do in your life and you Google and you will find somebody who has created the best method, the most efficient method to do this. Now, taken on its own, I actually got some pretty good advice about sleeping on your side. Your arm, support your head. That's the tip. <laughs> Take anything from today. I want you to have a good night's sleep. Wouldn't that be good? Just a good night's sleep. That's, I don't feel like that's asking too much. So uh, taken on its own, that's just helpful information. But here's the thing. When every single step of your life has a best way to do it, what happens is you feel constantly inadequate because you're not doing it the right way. 
Now, if you're a parent, you've certainly felt this because everyone's telling you the proper way to parent, right? Uh, but, it, but you'll find this in jobs. Actually, the more efficient way to do this is X, Y, and Z. Actually, the more efficient way to exercise is this. You know you're not drinking enough glasses of water each day. You know you're not doing this right. And the effect that I think this has upon us is that we feel a few things at the same time. One, we feel the need to be self-optimizing. I have to be improving myself, upgrading myself, making myself more efficient. Um, sometimes people say, you know, I want to I be the best version of myself, which I find hilarious because it sounds like there's some robot or, or uh, I don't know, a clone of you out there that's the real better version of yourself and you're trying to beat that guy or, or woman, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, I want to be the best, or it sounds like you're an operating system. Yeah, I want to be the best version of myself, make sure I've updated, don't have any security flaws, I'm doing good. What this can do is, so, so here's what happens. Technique, on the one hand, promises us, okay, whatever problems you have in life, we can fix it. So whatever problem, relationships, whatever, there's a, a self-help book, there's a life hack or an app or a life coach or a devotional that will walk you through how to live more efficiently so that you can fix this problem. Okay, well, that sounds pretty great, but here's the flip side of that. Techniques promise that life is getting easier and easier actually ends up being a source of dread and shame because if life doesn't have to be this hard, if there are answers and methods and practices that can solve all your problems, then it's really your fault that you're overwhelmed or burnt out or a failure or inadequate. It's your fault. And that's why that student turns on friends instead of writing her paper because she taps out. She decides it's too much. I can't win. So why try? If I'm not living to my full potential, I'm to blame for not taking advantage of the methods, the techniques, the tools given to me. Now, um, what's at the, the core of this, uh, of this suffering? So here, I, I want to do an experiment. I'm, I'm not going to be able to tease out all the reasons I think this is the case. But, so I'm going to treat it as a, as a kind of thought experiment. What about, just consider this. What if, what if the society that we live in was designed with a false understanding of what it means to be human? You can ask yourself the question, if that's the case, okay? If you imagine the people who made our laws, who made our, our, our economy, our, our careers, our literature, our entertainment, our values, our morals, our styles, our designs, everything. If all of those people had a flawed understanding of what it meant to be human, then what do you think the natural consequence would be? Despair, anxiety, frustration. Um, I want to talk about something called zoocosis. Zoocosis. It's not a technical term. It's sort of a, a, a popularized term for something that um, zoologists actually have witnessed in uh, animals in captivity. Um, if you've ever been to the zoo and you see an animal, particularly maybe a lion or a bear, pacing in circles, and, you, and sometimes what you can see is there's tracks on the ground, and you can tell, like, okay, there's grass everywhere, and there's an oval. And you know, okay, this animal has been pacing in this circle forever? 
It's upsetting. Uh, I went to Baylor University, which, which have the men's basketball national champions. I taught composition there many years ago, so I'm not saying that I helped create a winning culture, but, <laughs> but it's possible. Um, at Baylor, we have these, we, I don't know, they have these mascots, these two brown or black bears. I don't know my bears. I teach literature. I don't know for bears. But we got these two bears that are our mascots. Now, a long time ago, they had what was called, what they called uh, the bear pit. And it was literally just a pit in the ground, a concrete pit in the ground, so the bears could not attack tourists who came to visit the mascots when they tour the campus. Now, as you can imagine, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, I don't know the exact date, somebody came along and was like, this is terrible. We just have some poor trapped bears in a pit. Can we do better than this? And so they did. Bela had enough money. And uh, I want you to think about this, okay? So here we have animals in captivity. And uh, the people in charge said, let's design intentionally the best environment for these animals that we can. We'll hire people who know the most about these animals, who know the most about designing habitats for them. We'll hire someone to take care of them who is an expert on these bears. So they did. It's got like a waterfall. It's, got a, it's much nicer than the apartment that I was living in as a grad student. They, the bears had a pretty nice. Uh, you know, it had all these toys in it, and it had these branches, and it had multiple sections, and it was just beautiful. It was lovely. Uh, and the bears walked in circles all day. All day. I, uh, now, um, <clears throat> that's what zoocosis is. Zoocosis is uh, uh, um, when an animal in captivity has a, has a psychosis. They're unwell because they're living in an environment that was not made for them. Which is ironic because that cage was literally made for them. Like intentionally. They sat down and was like, what can we spend our money on to make it so that these animals have a good life? And in the end, the animals are miserable. One thing that always struck me about this is that everyone just sort of takes it for granted. Like when you walk by, everyone sees that these animals are depressed because they're walking in circles, which is clearly a sign of despair. Um, But we're all just like, what are you going to do? You know, got to have animals in captivity, got to have a zoo, got to have some mascots, so we'll just have to put up with it. Which I do think kind of reflects the way we deal with problems in society. Yeah, the way society is structured is pretty, in some pretty profound ways, disordered and dehumanizing. What are you going to do? Got to have it. Um, interestingly enough, to treat zoocosis, what uh, zookeepers will do, zookeepers, I feel like it's like, like a Dr. Seuss term, uh, zoologists, I don't know, whatever those people are in charge of the bears, what they will do, uh, they'll actually give them antidepressants. And they will give them enrichment opportunities or tools. In other words, they'll give them balls, things to play with. And when I learned that, it was very depressing because I thought, wait a minute. That's what society does to distract me. <laughs> Am I the bear? Now, okay. So I'm not, I'm not saying that we're all bears trapped in a zoo. It's not, it's not that extreme. But there is a kind of parallel here that I think is useful. In this uh, hypothetical reality I described, this thought experiment, 
if it's true that our society was not actually made for humans as we really are, because the people who designed that environment for those bears, they designed it for a bear, but not who bears actually are. Okay? Because if they did, the, the bears wouldn't have been anxious and depressed. And so, likewise, if our society is structured with a false understanding of what it means to be human, it would make sense for us to feel overwhelmed, burnt out, anxious, constant frustration and tension. And I, I, I do think, I'm not going to be able to give you all the evidence for why I think it is the case, but I do think that that is the, the world that we live in. And specifically, I believe that our society understands humans in this way. We are each our own, and we belong to ourselves. That is the fundamental understanding of what it means to live as a human in the West. We are each only ever our own, and we belong to ourselves. Very often, this is presented as a promise or the exciting thing about the contemporary world. You're liberated. You're free. You are your own person. But it very much has a dark side. Because if we are our own and we belong to ourselves, then our lives turn into projects or journeys or quests about us. And we're the only ones responsible for making our lives meaningful. We're the only ones who can make our lives meaningful. We're the only ones who can save ourselves. We're the only ones who can uh, decide when we are our true self. We're the only ones who can define our identity. It's just us. The world ends up becoming a threat to us. It's, a, it's a, a thing out there that's preventing us from being who we want to be. So we become hostile and anxious. And everyone else out there is doing the same thing, desperately trying to become someone, to craft an identity, to accomplish certain things, to be successful. And they're in competition with you. So we have a hyper-competitive culture hyper-competitive. Again, this is why my student is binge-watching Friends. Um, part of what contributes to this is a condition that uh, one of my favorite uh, philosophers, mostly just because of his name, his name is Zygmunt Bauman, and, and I believe in judging people by their names, and that's just a fantastic name. It's just fun to say, Zygmunt Bauman. Uh, he wrote a book called Liquid Modernity. He's trying to describe what it's like to live in our world, and he says uh, there's a liquidity to our world. Um, and by that, he means everything seems to be changing under our feet. Now, that's always, you know, change always happens. Okay, sure. But not this fast. Not this fast. I mean, think about the last 18 months, how the world has changed. Okay. Um, and it's, it's everything. This is what Bauman's argues. The experience of living in the contemporary world is everything is shifting out from under you. So your identity is uncertain. Who are you? I don't know. I need to go to college to find myself, we'll say. Of course, once you go to college, you still don't find yourself, and so you keep hunting and hunting and hunting and hunting, right? Because everything is contingent. Everything is uncertain. We don't know who we are. He uses this phrase I love called until further notice because uh, he's, uh, he's trying to describe relationships in a world of liquid modernity. And he says, all relationships are, quote, until further notice in this world. Yeah, I'm married to you. 
until further notice. Yeah, you're my kid until further notice. Yeah, you're my parent until I'm going to disown you. Yeah, you're my friend and until I leave. Now, um, interestingly, uh, if we are our own, ha- living in a liquid world is actually essential. I can't be held back by relationships. So this liquid modernity, which is pretty awful, it's actually necessary. Society has to be structured in that way. I have to be free to divorce. I have to be free to abandon friends, to move to different states, to follow jobs, to do whatever I want in order for me to fulfill my journey of being and belonging to myself. But of course... (laughs) Although society promises, if you'll, just, if you'll just accept that you belong to yourself and be the most authentic, the best version of you, you will be content. You will be happy. You will have achieved something. But as we've already discussed, the evidence is all, the ruins are all around us. It does not work. Society's promise is a lie. It does not provide. In fact, it makes everything so much worse. Here are a couple of quotes. These are, these are from a, a, a French historian of psychology, and he's talking about um, what contemporary depression is like. He says, Being, uh, becoming ourselves made us nervous. Being ourselves makes us depressed. The anxiety of being oneself hides behind the weariness of the self. Being yourself, being a person in this world is wearying. You feel tired, fatigued, burnt out, constantly stretched too thin. And this man, Ironberg, this historian says, beneath that fatigue is a desperation, is this anxiety, I'm not good enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm inadequate, I'm not making enough out of my life. He goes on to say that actually depression and addiction are the two sides of what he calls the sovereign individual. This is not a Christian author, at least as far as I'm aware, but I love that. I don't love it, but it's, it's, it's helpful. Depression and addiction are two sides of the sovereign individual. So if you belong to yourself, you're the person who defines your identity. You're the person who decides if your life is meaningful, what your values are, where your justification is, uh, where you belong in the world. If you're the only one who can do all those things, you're sovereign. You're the king. And what is the result? He's looking at the results and he says, okay, looking at modern psychology, the result has been depression and addiction. That's what we've been left with. And primarily, he says that because of this sense of inadequacy that I mentioned earlier. It's very fascinating. What this man does, this historian does, is he looks at the way psychologists have described depression across the centuries. When people say, come to a a counselor and say, well, I'm depressed, um, the, the symptoms they describe, the feelings they describe have changed over time. They're not static. They're culturally conditioned. And he says, what's interesting is that in the contemporary world, a lot of people describe their experience of depression as a feeling of inadequacy, as I mentioned earlier, and inaction. Inadequacy and inaction. He says, the ownership of the self, which is what I'm talking about here, we belong to ourselves, we're our own persons, has become our lifestyle. Isn't that the case? It has been sociologically integrated into our, our morality and the very heart of our intimate sovereignty. Now, he goes on to say that in some ways, this is the, the, the promise that if, if you've read Nietzsche, that, that, that Nietzsche with the Ubermensch, the overman, that he promises 
Yeah, you know what? When you become a true person, when you say, I'm not going to let society and my parents and tradition and the church and the government tell me who I'm going to be, I'm going to rise above all of these ethics and become my own person. This is the promise. And, and here's what Einrenberg says. The individual, free from morality, which is what Nietzsche was talking about, creating herself by herself and aspiring to be superhuman is not our reality. That's not actually how it's worked. Instead of possessing the strength of masters, she turns out to be fragile, lacking in being, weary of her sovereignty, and full of complaints, which sounds like a lot of people I know. All right. I want to talk about some implications here because I've been sort of floating at the the thousand-foot level, and we need to... I want to sort of bring this down. Okay. Um, if we have been conditioned by society to believe that we are our own and belong to ourselves, what effect, what practical effect does this have and why? I want to look at two, very quickly, two implications. Um, There are a number of different spheres we could look at that this affects, but I just want to look at two. One is identity and the other is belonging. If I am my own and I belong to myself, I must define who I am. I want you to think about the kind of messages we hear in society. My parents can name me, the government can give me a social security number, but only I can decide my identity. The responsibility to define myself is not actually something I can opt out of. I can't just say, well, I don't want to do this. No, society pressures me to constantly. To be human is to have an identity. And the contemporary understanding of humanity decrees that each of us has the freedom and responsibility to define that identity. Uh, Think about this. The basic story that we tell ourselves in the modern world is the story of self-discovery. Self-discovery. Our films, our novels, our our music, our TV shows repeatedly follow the story of a protagonist who longs to know who they truly are, which makes sense if we belong to ourselves. And to uh, uncover their authentic self, to throw off the expectation of fathers and teachers and the rest of society in order to follow their own path. And you could just pick any Disney film uh, to do this. But it's not just, uh, you know, popular films. Um, uh, I teach contemporary literature. And in the great literature of the last hundred years, this is repeated over and over. Uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison is about the journey to discover himself. The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath is about the journey to discover herself. We might say that the, the, the journey of self-discovery, that's the contemporary hero story. You probably heard, you know, got taught what the hero story is. Well, that might be true for Homer, but that's not really true for us. For us, it's the journey of self-discovery. Who are you? What is your personality? What motivates you? These questions are not easily answered, and they keep changing because, again, everything's liquid, which creates a sense of anxiety. Is this really me? Is this really me? Or am I just putting on a front? Maybe I should change my style. And when that obligation becomes overwhelming, that obligation to create an identity, we call it an identity crisis. And I think a lot of people suffer from perpetual or chronic identity, identity crises. You're just constantly unsure. We take it actually as a, as a matter, of course, that, that a teenager is going to suffer an identity crisis. Well, that's just, that's just what it means to come of age. Historically, that's not true. That's not true. That's just true today. People knew who they were. Um, to me, one of the best examples of this is, is the story uh, of the Divine Comedy of Dante and the Divine Comedy. 
if you haven't read it, it begins with Dante, the protagonist, lost at night in the woods. And he says that in the middle of his life, he woke up and he had gotten off a path. He was on this path, and then all of a sudden he woke up and was like, I'm lost in the woods. Now, for many readers, one of the reasons Dante continues to be read is that many people are like, you know what, I'm having a midlife crisis too, you know? You know, I'm about to turn 40, and I wake up one day, and I'm like, wait, how did I get here? The talking heads, you know, uh, what is this beautiful house? What's, What's going on? Did I choose this? Um... The plot of the Divine Comedy, though, is not of, listen to this, is not the plot of somebody who's trying to find out who he is. It's actually someone trying to seek God and Christ-likeness. That's it. Dante knows who he is the entire time. It's not an identity crisis. It's a spiritual crisis. But if we were to retell that story today, it would not be a spiritual crisis. It would be an identity crisis. Who am I would be the question, not to whom do I belong, which is the more important question. All right. Um, One more example. I want to talk about belonging. I I think belonging um, is so important. If I'm my own and I belong to myself, then all my associations, my ties, my relationships um, have to be voluntary. I might lend myself out for 40 or 50 or 80 hours a week in exchange for some pay. I might figuratively, quote-unquote, belong to my wife or my kids or my community. But in the end, these are fundamentally choices that I make about how I want to live my life, which really only ever belongs to me. I might just as well not lend myself out to an employer. I belong to my wife only to the extent that I choose to belong to her. I owe her some fidelity, but it's a kind of negotiated fidelity. I promise not to sleep with other women so long as she promises not to sleep with other men. Fantasies, of course, can't be policed. And if for some reason one of us decides that our belonging together is not as fulfilling to that self that belongs fundamentally to us, and so we're the only ones responsible for us for it, then we're legally free to separate and pursue that life. In fact, I may even feel in our society, I may even, this is hypothetical, this is not actually me, just, <laughs> just to be very clear. I may even feel a kind of moral obligation to leave my wife to be with somebody more fulfilling if I think it's a more authentic relationship. That's the kind of world that we live in. And you know what? If we are our own and belong to ourselves, that makes total sense. You're kind of a fool if you don't do that. Why would you deny the thing that makes you most authentic if you are your own and belong to yourself? So I, I've got these... Uh, you know, so I do belong to my kids in a you know, legal way. <laughs> I have some responsibility, but there are ways around that too. And there's a biological way, but you know, um, they don't have to have any hold on my identity. I can, I can alienate my children. I don't really have to belong to them in a deep and abiding sense. I just have to feed them, pay child support. And my biological connection to my children, yes, it's stronger than the legal con- uh, obligation. I can sever the legal one, but the biological one remains. But biology just explains why things are 
It doesn't explain what they ought to be. And isn't it the case that most of the, the great advances, quote-unquote great advances in the modern world, are ways in which we defy biology? We defy the natural world. Genetically modified food, wind turbines, the airplane. I might not be able to undo the fact that my children share my DNA, but I don't have to accept that our shared genes mean anything. They're an accident of biology, the coincidence of genetic similarity. Similarly, I don't have to uh, associate myself with a specific uh, community. Uh, If I was born uh, and raised in one city, that city has no hold on me. I can go wherever I want to pursue whatever kind of job or life that I want. The people there and the environment there have no hold on me. We are free to join and leave our communities, to live in one place and adopt digital communities that are completely divorced from that place, to dwell in a city but never inhabit it. That's an interesting thing that we can do today that we couldn't do before, historically speaking. You can move to a place and never meet anyone. (laughs) Have strictly online communities, never attend a church, just do your work. And in your work, uh, the customers don't treat you as a member of your community. They see you as an avatar or a representative of a corporation. You're not a real person. And you don't feel like a real person, so you don't feel obligated to treat them as a member of your community. Because we are each our own and belong to ourselves. There are no natural bonds. When asked to define freedom, contemporary people usually imagine the absence of constraints. In our society, freedom means the lack of restraint. In many ways, liberal democracy is premised on this conception of freedom. Humans cannot be truly human without freedom, and freedom means that no one can control me, coerce me, obligate me, or limit me. Um, But this only leads to destruction. All right, so to conclude, I believe that our society has been constructed, not, not, perhaps not intentionally, but constructed nonetheless, our laws, our values, our stories have been built on a specific idea of what it means to be human, just like those zoologists or whatever who designed the cage for those bears. They had a certain idea. What is, it, what is a brown or black, I have no idea, bear need to live well? But if that definition of what it means to be human is wrong, in other words, it's not actually how God made us, then the pressure to live in certain ways, the pressure to not be committed, the pressure to constantly find and redefine our identity and promote it on social media, all these things are actually going to make us feel worse, not better. And the techniques and solutions that society gives us in order to fulfill our, our, our sense of belonging to ourselves, they don't ease the burden. They just make us feel more and more desperate, more and more depressed. They lead to what Eilenberg says, depression and addiction. So now I, I begin this by saying I need you to stick with me um, because uh, we're going to take a break. 
and uh, this is not where I'm leaving you, okay? So maybe this is like a cliffhanger. You've got to come back, otherwise you're going to be so depressed for the rest of the day. But this is, not, this is not the world that we have to live in, okay? This is not reality. And there is a response, uh, you know, the, the, the cliff notes, but you still have to come back, is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and death to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that changes all of these things. So that's what we're going to talk about after the break, which is now right? Yes. All right. Thank you.